I'm certain many of you are aware that the death of our Lord Jesus was prophesied many times in the Old Testament. I would like to read perhaps the best known one among the Christian people. It is found in Isaiah 53. If you'll turn there in your Bible to Isaiah 53, I'll start reading at the third verse. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as, sheep before, as, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. If you go back to the 23rd chapter of Luke, you would find the three different times there. Jesus Christ could have said just one word and would not have had to go to Calvary or could have gotten out of it. But that's why he came here. He came here to die. But there are some people who have had some very, very strange ideas about this greatest fact of all history, that Christ died for our sins. But when you look at this, look at it closely, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now, it doesn't say born astray. It says gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all. Otherwise, he was our sin bearer, and those people in the Old Testament, they had a day of Passover, 
the Day of Atonement, looking forward to the time when the Messiah or the Messiah would come and die for their sins and our sins, the sins of the whole world. And I think we need to look into this in a very careful way because we have looked at various theories of the atonement and in any consideration of the theory which has been advanced to explain the atonement, two things must be constantly kept in mind. First, a sharp distinction must be made between the fact of the atonement and the theory advanced to explain it. One may by faith be made a partaker of the benefits of the atonement and yet not hold a proper or correct theory of its explanation. And on the other hand, it is possible to hold a correct theory of the atonement and still be a stranger to its saving grace. Do you get what I said? It's possible to not understand it correctly, but having put your faith and trust and repented of your sins, having sought the Lord, you can become a partaker and not a stranger to its saving grace. Second, errors found in these very theories, because I've told you about seven different, 17 different theories I have come across, that the errors found in the theories of the atonement are due largely to an undue emphasis upon one of its essential elements and also to minimize or to exclude other essential elements. Now there's three essential elements that must enter into any adequate theory of the atonement. And this is the most important subject you'll ever study in this world, my friends. I believe that 90% of the error in our doctrine going about over the radio and over TV and various house-to-house -house ministries, various kinds, is due to not having studied this particular subject in a thorough way and their theories on the atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ very badly misrepresent our Heavenly Father. Now, if you want me to love someone with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength, that one must have some lovable characteristics. You cannot love a barber pole with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But some of the theologies of today have just about robbed God of every lovable attribute he has. I was taught so many miserable things that were wrong on this subject. And by the way, this subject has given me more trouble than anything else I ever studied in this world. And the reason it gave me so much trouble was that when I started to study this great subject, everything I knew about it was wrong. Now, unlearning is harder than learning. Of course, most people have never come up across that because it's never dawned on them that maybe not only the Muslims, the Hindus, and the Buddhists, and the Shintoists, and the Taoists, and the Unitarians, 
and the Jehovah's Witnesses, they think they're the only ones to see, but we Bible believers couldn't be. We got it all. <laughs> Whereas I think that's the main realm of, of Satan's endeavor has been in theology and still is. So, the three essential elements that must enter into any adequate theory of the atonement are these. The idea of the propitiation or substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins. We should have died, he died for us. Otherwise, a vicarious atonement. Second, the necessity of upholding the dignity of the divine government and the divine governor. A lot of people don't like to hear it, but God is the moral governor of the universe, whether we like it or not. They'll talk about the kingdom of God quite loosely, but when you tell them that God is a moral governor of the universe, you would think that's a terrible thing that God is a moral governor, but how can you have any form of government without a governor of some kind? And after all, he only wants to govern us for our own good and the good of one another. Now, we live in a democracy, so-called, but our president is, takes the form of almost of a king. In the kingdom, like they have in several places in Europe, the king is supposed to be the top one of the moral government of God. And when people talk about the sovereign God, they're talking about the God, the moral governor of the universe. And by the way, there's one thing you better learn about our great God. Insofar as the word sovereign is concerned, I hear it most of the time when I hear that word used, it's misused. They make it out to be something capricious, that he does things arbitrarily, he acts on whims. I remember hearing a man one time, a fine preacher from the South, trying to explain something, and he finally was getting in deeper and deeper and wasn't getting out of it. And here's the way he closed it. Well, he said, God is sovereign. He can do as he pleases. No, he can't. He can, but he won't. He never does anything arbitrarily. Now, like for instance, we are now in the sovereign state of Texas. Now, what that means is that Texas has the ability to make its own laws, have its own state legislature, make its own regulations, regardless how they affect Arkansas, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Indiana, or any one of the other 49 states, but within the framework and limitations of the Constitution of the United States. So Texas has a limited sovereignty. By the same token, our great God will not go against what he has said in the Bible. He will not go against his nature. He will not go against his character. So therefore, it is a limited sovereignty that even God has, although it's a self-imposed limitation. But the main thing to learn is that he never does. And by the way, he does not want us to be respecter of persons. 
Otherwise, he wants me to think as highly of the black person, the red person, as I do the white person. You know why? For the simple reason they're all of equal value. It is not intelligent for me to be very friendly to one and not to the other and to give a higher importance and value to one than the other. That's just plain stupidity. And the Bible teaches us to not be a respecter of persons, and God says seven times in the New Testament, he's not a respecter of persons. So it's about time that some of us should not be either. So the second thing I'd like to call your attention, the necessity. I know I said this a little while ago, but I want to say it. The necessity of upholding the dignity of the divine government and the governor himself. Otherwise, we're going to see that God has monstrous problems in the forgiving of sin. And one thing the atonement, among many things, tries to do is to show us the awfulness of sin. And let me tell you, it was so awful, look at the awful answer it took to get the answer to the forgiveness of sin. We all know it's the death of God's own son. If that doesn't give you a peek into it, and that also should give you a peek into the value of a soul, value of a person. I'm saying that because I've met a lot of people who had a very, very low self-image. And I have said to them, I don't know your name, and if you told me, I'd probably forget two minutes later. But I know a lot of things about you that are moral absolutes about you. First, I know you're valuable because you're made in the image of God. That makes you valuable. That's why God instituted capital punishment back there in the 21st chapter of Exodus because of the value of a human being. So they're valuable. And I also know that they are unique. Now, you know, women never like to buy a dress and then see that same kind of a dress on another person. In fact, they'll take it back almost to the store. Well, you can rest assured, friend, there is another one in this world like you, if you're a female. No two of us have ever been made alike. So you're unique. Third, you are important. You are so important that Jesus Christ died for you. How much more important do you want out of this life? Now that should take anybody out of the mental dumps, shouldn't it? Or depression. You're so important that Jesus Christ died for you. I'll tell you two more things I know about you. These are absolutes. Yet I know some people that say there's nothing absolutely right nothing absolutely wrong, and they're absolutely sure there are no absolutes. <laughs> but I'm absolutely sure that you have two great big needs in your life, and the first one is you have the need to be loved. And then you have the need to love. And God has designed man to run on love, to operate on love. And is it any wonder he demanded we love one another? I have helped design a lot of mechanisms in this 
mechanical world of ours. And I have helped design some that which, when we have come up with a maintenance manual, we have said, now, we insist that you keep four quarts of oil in this mechanism because it is designed to live on oil and run on oil, exist on oil. Now, are we being hard and burdensome and rigid and demanding when we say that? No, we say that so you'll get the most out of your mechanism. So it will fulfill its planned design, its reason for existence. Well, why do you think God demands we love one another? Because we are created to be loving creatures and we exist on love. And by the way, Mr. William Glasser, the psychologist who came up with, he thinks he was original, but he wasn't, with reality therapy, he says that not getting those two needs met in people's lives is the main cause of people having mental problems. Now, he doesn't call them sicknesses. He says they're not mentally sick. He says they have problems in living. And I would agree with that. But these are definite things that we must know about this, and you can see why then that God began to give us a method whereby he could forgive man his sin and uphold his justice and uphold his moral government and that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. But getting back to these theories on the atonement, now of these 17 that I mentioned to you, for any theory to have respectability or to be called a theory, it must answer two questions. By the way, most of those 17 don't answer these two questions. First one is, first question, why cannot man achieve his own deliverance from sin and harmonize himself with God? Why can't he do that? It must answer that question. The second question it must answer, why cannot God achieve both without a mediation in Christ? Both what? To achieve his own deliverance from sin and harmonize himself with God. This, my Bible teaches that man is alienated from God. All we like sheep have gone astray. We're separated, we're alienated from the commonwealth of God. Now, I'd like to give you a very good short definition of the atonement in Christ. This comes from John Miley, a theologian of the last century. He says, the vicarious sufferings of Christ are an atonement for sin as a conditional substitute for penalty, fulfilling on the forgiveness of sin the obligation of justice and the office of penalty in moral government. I'd like to give that to you again. John Miley, his name is spelled M-I-L-E-Y. He's written several very, very good books on theology. Here's his definition again. It is the vicarious 
otherwise the substitutionary suffering of Christ, or his sufferings are an atonement for sin as a conditional substitute for penalty, fulfilling on the forgiveness of sin the obligation of justice and the office of penalty in the moral government. He says there a statement most of us wouldn't be even familiar with. It'd go right overhead when he says, fulfilling the obligation of justice and the office of penalty in moral government. See, the lands of this world today with their system of law, their legislatures, their penitentiaries, penal institutions, their forensic courts, such as the judges, the juries, prosecuting attorneys, they are concerned with getting at what was right. They're not concerned with mercy. They're concerned with what was right and that justice be done. That's what they're concerned with. But in God's moral government, He's concerned with people who have done wrong, have sinned against their fellow man and sinned against God, but now see that they're guilty for that and they'd like to find forgiveness. They'd like to be reconciled to God, otherwise be restored to favor. Another definition of reconciliation would be to cause one thing to cease, another thing to take its place. And so he came up with this thing we call the atonement or the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And a person with, if they'll begin to think, begin to reason. And by the way, to have some serious reflections on their own life. By the way, what do I mean by reflection? I mean some intense thinking about our behavior in the past and where we're going in the future. A real concentration of thinking. By the way, the Christian religion is a religion for thinking people. People that won't think can't become a Christian. I do not say you have to be an intellectual, but you do have to start using your mind. You've got to be thinking about these things. And they have to become a, a very serious part of your life. Now, there was a time when most people didn't think much about this, and it's gone full, full circle. We don't today either. You can make a statement to most people, such as this one from the Bible, from most translation, it says, you're bought with a price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. They'll try to make an exact little payment or a payment out. No, that's an analogy there. That's a figure of speech. And trying to get across the idea of forgiveness, but to redeem, to bring back to a right relationship with God. Man has gone astray. He's lived for himself. Every man has turned his own way, but the Lord hath laid on him the iniquities of us all, and he wants to bring us back. Now, what do we mean, really mean by redemption? But that scripture I quoted you, you're bought with a price, you're not your own. 
you'll find if you would look at that very closely, it could have been translated, you're ransomed with honor. Otherwise, you're brought back into a right relationship with God. Don't get hung up on just even the word blood there because the blood of Jesus Christ signifies his life and it here is signifying his death. But we will take some of these great analogies that God gives us and figures and we'll take some little part of that and then emphasize it all out of proportion and pretty soon we got a God says Scrooge and a tyrant and you got a God. Jesus had to die to pay the Father for your sin. There isn't a verse in the Bible that says Jesus paid for sin. Not one. It says he bore our sins. Now, I just want to talk to you a little bit about this thing of, of redemption. Charles Grandison Finney used to say, and it teaching on the redemption, the fact of redemption, redeeming. There was a farmer that had a farm on the edge of some very rugged and bad land. Now, his farmland was all right. But he had a little boy about seven years of age, and he had the best interest of this lad at heart, his name was John, that he fenced in his complete farm. And this lad, John, was the apple of his eye. If he went to town, he couldn't wait to get home to see his son. I know the feeling. I had two daughters and a son many times. I couldn't wait till I got home to see my children. And they'd come running and jump and come up and hug me. And uh, I got a big kick out of that because I didn't press a button to make them do that. That's like some people say, why didn't God make me loving? It wouldn't be love, would it? They've also said, why didn't God make me so I couldn't sin? If you couldn't sin, you couldn't love. Otherwise, they're both choices, aren't they? And he's made us free moral agents. So he told this lad every day, he said, now, John, don't ever go out, climb over that fence and go out in there. That's dangerous. Every time he went to town, he told him when he went. He told him when he came back. He told him every day. One day, the father went to town. He came back. He looked for John. He couldn't find John anywhere. So he looked all over his farm within the, the fenced-in part. Practically made himself hoarse, yelling, Johnny, where are you? Then by process of elimination, he said, I better start looking outside the fence. And there were some deep canyons outside of this and arroyos. And he would yell down to them, Johnny, where are you? And he does this for several hours until it gets almost dark, and he has walked many miles. Johnny, where are you? Finally, one of them, time he yelled down there, and he said, Daddy, I'm down here. I'm stuck. Well, John, I'll come down. So when he started going down, as you get in there, all he could hear was Johnny say, Daddy, will you forgive me? He knew he had disobeyed his dad. He said, Daddy, will you forgive me? Daddy, will you forgive me? Daddy, will you forgive me? When he got there, he hugged him. Now, I want to ask you folks a question. 
Do you think he only wanted to forgive him and then leave him down there? That's the way a lot of people are about the forgiveness of sin. You think God wants to forgive you and still leave you in sin? No, Jesus came to set the prisoner free. And God does not have any method of forgiveness of sin that forgives a man but doesn't transform him. Or otherwise, that doesn't subdue his rebellious heart. So there's no use of us talking about the death of our Lord Jesus Christ that will deal with the penalty of sin if it doesn't deal with the power of sin in the human life. If it only deals with the penalty of sin, it's a half-baked atonement. And some things are, that are half-baked are better off not even eating. <laughs> At least they won't give you a false hope. And this great subject that we have we're talking about here. In fact, is there's a very similar illustration to that, a true story, and that was a true story I just gave you. So God didn't want to leave him down there and just forgive him. No. He wanted to forgive him. That's true. And he wanted to bring him up out of there. That's redemption. That's redemption. It's forgiveness and redemption. He brings him back to where he should be. After the Civil War had been over, about 10 years, a man went to a plantation down in the south, over here in Mississippi is where it was, and he found slaves there that didn't know the Civil War was over. And they're still working there as slaves. Oh, they weren't mistreated. But this fellow went to these men and said, don't you know the Civil War is over? The North is won. You've got your slavery. The Lincoln's Proclamation of Emancipation of 1862 grants you your freedom. What are you staying here for? Well, many of them said, that's fine. I got my freedom, but this man is a good man to work for, and they stayed there. But many of them came up north because they, now they had freedom to travel. They had freedom to choose. But somebody had to get the message to them. And also somebody evidently had hid it from them. And I'm afraid that's what we're doing to the world today. We've got a message of redemption. We've got a message of forgiveness, a message of liberty to set the captives free. And Jesus came to... Break every fetter. Do you know what I mean by fetter? A fetter is a link in a chain. Now, when men go out and steal and become a habitual thief, and each time they steal, it's like making a link in a chain. Or each time they go to the tavern and buy a beer or a series of beers, they make links in a chain. And that chain gets very long, evidently. And where do you think that chain goes? I have hired men, and when I've asked them, how are you on the alcohol and the beer question, they say, oh, I can take it or leave it. But I, after a while, I notice they're always taking it. <laughs> you know why? They say, oh, I can take it or leave it. And then I see them like this. 
They can't even drink a glass of water without spilling it. They're each only with both hands. I, I've seen them and spill it all over there. So let me ask you, where'd your freedom go? See, Edmund Burke said it right when he said, man's patience and appetites and desires forge his own fetters. Man's appetites, patience, and desires form his own fetters. But many men have thrown that freedom away, but bless God, Jesus came to set the prisoners free. And I always say he comes with a divine bolt cutter. <laughs> Can do this and snip every one of them off. I've known men, when I was a young man preaching in the city of Chicago, several nights a week in rescue missions for a simple reason. I love lost souls and nobody would ask me to preach anywhere else. <laughs> I've seen dope addicts come to an old-fashioned altar in repentance from sin, be delivered from alcohol, be delivered from dope, never have to go to any alcoholic treatment center after that, never, because Jesus had made a new creature out of them. Because therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Second rescue mission ever made in the United States was the first place ever spoke, called McAuley's Water Street Mission. Jerry McAuley was a river thief, a pirate, on the Hudson River. He got caught, sent to Sing Sing. While he's at Sing Sing, some man had tried to lead him to Christ, and he evidently had made a start. But when he got out, he was backslidden. A man was going house to house in New York, and Jerry was very poor, living in this very cheap rooming house. He saw this man come. He'd seen him several times. He was what's called a brethren. He said, now, it's very cold out, and that man comes up here, and he's going to talk to me about Jesus. I'm going to ask him for his overcoat. If he doesn't give me his overcoat, I'm going to throw him right down those stairs. Well, this house-to-house -house evangelist, this man, came up the stairs and began to talk to Jerry McCauley about Jesus. And Jerry McCauley said, it's cold out. Will you give me your overcoat? He said, yes, I will. He peeled it off to give it to him. In the name of the love of Christ. And Jerry McCauley broke down, began to weep. This little demonstration of love was what the Spirit of God used to show him. There are people in this world that do love their down and outers and will give what they have to help the Spirit of God to bring them to Christ again for a right relationship and for freedom. And Jerry McCauley got right with God again. And Jerry McCauley started a McCauley's Water Street Mission. It's still there. He ran it 25 years and died, and a converted businessman had been a real drunk named Sam Hadley took it over, and he ran it for 15 years. In 1910, Sam Hadley went to be with his maker and with his king, the Lord Jesus. That particular rescue mission in New York City has the biggest platform I've ever seen or spoken from. Wider than this auditorium, much deeper, 
when they had Sam Hadley's funeral service, it was held in the McAuley's Water Street Mission. And on the platform sat 55 of New York City's most successful businessmen as Sam Hadley had led to Christ in McAuley's Water Street Mission right there and had freedom now because Jesus had set the prisoners free because he died not only to forgive us, but to set us free. Now, he did that back there in 1910. I saw it many times myself in New York City and in Chicago and countless other cities. He's still in the business, my friends, of setting prisoners free. But he couldn't have done it unless he had died on Calvary's cross. Now he died there because God is the moral governor of the universe. And with a great moral law, moral government to uphold. He gave us the Ten Commandments, which he says in Deuteronomy 6.24, for our good always. I like it that when he went there in Deuteronomy 6.27, Moses said to the elders of Israel, God has invited me up on Mount Sinai. Do you think I ought to go? And this is what the Israelites said. I wish the evangelicals would say this today. They said, Go thou near, Moses, and hear all that the Lord our God shall say unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. They knew God was so right, so reasonable, so wonderful, so practical, not so hard, not rigid, not burdensome. But he never told him to do anything he wouldn't enable him to do, and it wasn't for the good. And he said, Go on, Moses, and hear all that the Lord our God shall say unto thee, and we will hear it and do it. And down, or up went Moses, but down he came with the blessed Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. And what had they been doing as a people while he's gone? had made a golden calf and were worshiping it. And even Moses had some righteous indignation, threw them down. They were broken. God said, Moses, stand aside. I'm going to mop up the earth with these stiff-necked people. Make a new nation out of you. Well, I'll ask you a simple question. Did he? No. God changed his mind because Moses prevailed in prayer for 40 days and 40 nights, and our great God changed his mind. There's something wrong with any mind that won't change. But our great God will change his mind if you give him a sufficient intelligent reason why he ought to change his mind. He certainly will. Every time he saves a sinner, he's changed his mind because he said, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Now, when he gave us a moral law, there's at least 10 things that had to be true about these. First was the precept of the law must be intelligible. They must be able to understand it. And that obedience to the moral law be practical. Third, that it shall be to the highest good of the subjects. Fourth, that it shall be impartial, not contrary to the law of nature. But also, everybody is to be under law. Fifth, that the lawgiver shall express in the sanctions the amount of his regard 
to the precept of the law. And what do I mean by that? Law without sanctions is not law, but it's advice. Ten Commandments have sanctions connected with them. That means penalties for disobedience, and it also means rewards for obedience. So the sixth one is that perfect obedience shall be rewarded with a perpetual favor and protection of the lawgiver. We have that in our land here today. What do you think we got? Do you think we originated that idea? We did not. Seven, that one breach of the precept shall incur the penalty of the law. Eight, that law makes no provisions for repentance or forgiveness. If you go out and murder someone, you repent of it. Is that going to make it right? No, no. Now, you're not going to get right with God and be forgiven unless you repent, but just repentance in itself won't do it. It won't remake anything. It won't restore anything. A lot of people think all they have to do is repent or turn over a new leaf, they're going to be right with God. No, that won't do it, friends. So, the leading design of any penal sanction or law is prevention. Otherwise, it's for the safety of everyone else that God tells you and me not to steal, or thou shalt not kill, or thou shalt not bear fairest witness. Because the moral government of the universe, even the moral government of this state, doesn't want us to hurt one another. And that's why he's given that to us. Number 10, that, that disobedience cannot be pardoned unless some equally efficient preventative be substituted for the penalty. And with that, I would say that where this can be done, pardon is in strict accordance with the perfection and with the perfect atonement. Now, God wants to reconcile men to him, but there's some problems on man's side, and then we're going to see there's some problems on our side. But first, I'd like to talk about the problems on our side. Man has a selfish purpose in life, and if he's going to be forgiven of, of his sin, he's got to terminate this selfish purpose of life. That's why Jesus said, if any man come after me, let him deny who? Himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. Second, guilt of past sin, or the penalty for it, must be forgiven. Now that's a problem. Because how does a just and a holy God forgive sinners when he's got a lot to uphold and he can't come up with a way of forgiving sin that's going to hurt the sinner or hurt his government? And that gets to be quite a problem. It's such a problem that that's part of the problem drove Jesus to Calvary. Plus, when we sin, we get an inner defilement, otherwise a great guilt that must be remedied and cleansed. This is the answer to it. Fourth, man has to become willing to be reconciled to his maker. Then when he comes to the cross, he must not only come for forgiveness, he comes for transformation and it must be sustained. 
And the last one is, and this is where our country's got to shorts today, a lack of truth. To really understand this greatest of all subjects here, and this has been victimized by oversimplification. You know, there's one thing worse than making something too complicated, friends, and that is oversimplification, because then you leave out the real essence of the subject. Most people don't have the ability to go and get that essence. Now, before I go much further on this, and I'll cover in the next lesson the problems that there are on God's side. Now, let me give it to you very plainly. I don't claim to cover it at all here. But there was a man down in the southern part of England that came over here during the gold strike and gold rush out in California at Sutter's Mill. He made a tremendous amount of money. He was very, very appreciative that he could make all this money. And when he got as much as he thought was right and reasonable, he said, I'm going to go home to England. I'm going to do a lot of good with this money. He wanted to see the United States, at least more than he had, on his way back to England. So he went by the way of New Orleans. While he's in New Orleans, he went down to the slave market. While he's there, he saw this terrible thing of men being sold into slavery. And it just about made him vomit. And he saw these men and women being sold without any say-so of their own. Many times they broke up families. There's some, there's some terrible things about that that we don't talk about. Sometimes some of those plantation owners bred those colored women, then sold their own sons into slavery. You can learn a lot about that by reading a book called Goodbye to Uncle Tom by Furness, F-U-R-N-E-S. Well, he saw them selling them. He just, but he saw a beautiful woman up there, beautiful black woman. He thought, oh, I think I'll wait and see what happens to her. So after quite a period of time, they finally got down to her. And they said, now, will anybody here give $100 for her? But by the way, in the meantime, any of you men want to make a bid, you can keep, even come up here and handle the merchandise. Otherwise, even fondle her. Right in front of all these people. What a degrading thing. Again, he was getting sick to his stomach. They began to bid on her, $100. One man said $200. Another man said $300. After quite a few minutes, they got up to $1,000. And they said, going once. And he, he raised his hand out. He said, I'll give $2,000 for her. He might have got her for $1,100, but he said, $2,000. He wanted to make no mistake. 
And so they said, sold to that gentleman right over there. So they took her over to him, and he went to where he paid for her. And he got a piece of paper. He said, now come on here, come on with me. He got pretty close to her, and she spit right in his face. She spit in this Englishman's face that had just bought her. He didn't get mad, just took his handkerchief out and wiped his face off. He said, come on. He went over to Canal Street, and he walked down Canal Street in New Orleans to the government building. He walked in, and he said, in what floor here or what room do I get manumission papers? And they told him where it was. So he took the girl, went to this room, and I think it cost him something like $5. He got manumission papers. And he handed these manumission papers to her, he said, here. And again, she spit in his face. Again, he took his handkerchief off. And he wiped it off. He said, young lady, I don't think you understand. He said, these manumission papers, you can go anywhere in the United States as long as you keep that with you, and you cannot be sold into slavery. You are free. Free. You don't belong to me. You are free. She couldn't quite get that in her head. She'd never heard of manumission papers before. And he explained it to her again. She went to him. Now, tell me again. He did. She said, you mean you bought me to set me free? He said, yes, I bought you to set you free. Say, that's what Jesus Christ did for you and for me. He went to Calvary, not only for us to be forgiven of our sin, but be set free from our sin. Be set free from it. Because this great demonstration of love is designed to conquer our old, selfish, rebellious hearts and let King Jesus come in to live. And that's why you often hear me pray, dear Lord, help us all here to let Jesus have what he died for. That's you and me. But most people will not let Jesus have what he died for. It's like you buying a new car. You never get the keys, and it just sits out there. All you can do is look at it and pay taxes on it, of course. And she walked over to him to this fine English gentleman, and she put her arms around him, and this great demonstration of love has so subdued her rebellious heart that she couldn't stand up, and she just caved in like this and went down to the floor with her arms around both these legs, and with tears coming down her face, she put her cheek on her, on his dusty boots. She said, Mr., I love you, 
I'll serve you the rest of my life because you brought me to set me free. He didn't do that for her to serve him. But wait a minute. Isn't that the way you and I ought to feel about Jesus when he died on Calvary's cruel cross, bearing away the sin of the world, dying there of a broken heart over sin? He didn't die from the physical causes on Calvary, or the nail prints, or the whatever abuse that they gave him. Or that's, he would not even drink anything that would deaden that pain. Should we have any less of a feeling toward Jesus Christ than this dear black woman had for this English gentleman? She says, you bought me to set me free. Now, what do you think Jesus did for us? Not only to forgive us of this governmental problem, but to make our future conduct and transformation Sure, so God could be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Because the lands, courts, they have a real problem when they forgive a sinner. Otherwise, when they parole him or pardon him, do they have any assurance when he goes back out there he's not going to do it again? Of course not. I heard of a man in Indiana who was in at one of the penal institutions in Indiana 28 different times. 28 different times. Men today will get apprehended and convicted for no other reason. They can't stand reality and responsibility outside, they think. They throw a brick through a window to get sent back to a penal institution. Well, Jesus doesn't want that. Jesus doesn't want that. He wants us to be forgiven and transformed and recognize and assume and fulfill our responsibilities to our fellow man and to the moral government of God and to his blessed son on Calvary and live in newness of life, having been set free and in the moral government of God has just been blessed in such a way. I don't like the word satisfied. But that which has been done that is consistent with giving pardon. And doesn't our Bible say, let the wicked forsake his way, their unrighteous man his thoughts, let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, for our God will abundantly pardon. He didn't say parole. He said pardon. Now, but a pardon is very much like a parole. But there's some differences. They do sometimes pardon men who have not been, been guilty. But they'll never parole anyone if the parole board knows what they're supposed to know unless that prisoner <coughs> will admit his guilt, that he's a guilty person. They'll never turn an innocent person loose on parole to run around and say he is incarcerated wrongfully. And by the way, God's the same way. If you want to be forgiven of your sin, you must admit your guilt. Why shouldn't you? Everybody else knows you're guilty. But the old proud heart 
For all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord Jesus had laid upon him the iniquities of us all, so that a just and merciful God with a wonderful moral government up there to uphold and to administrate had to have a way whereby he could forgive us our sin and still uphold his justice so he could be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Thank you very much.